morning, everybody. <clears throat> it's great to see you all out this morning. And if it's your first time, my name is Jeff. And um, you have an outline that you received in your packet of information when you came in. It's a, it's a white sheet with holes punched on the side. And it'll kind of help you get the most out of today's lesson. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But over the last three weeks, uh, we've been engaged in a lesson series entitled Fully Functioning Followers Get. In other words, what we've been doing is we've been examining a number of things that those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus must get in order to fully function as Christians in a culture that is becoming increasingly non-Christian or, as some call it, post-Christian. These are things that we must think about, things that we must wrap our heads around if we hope to be effective as Christ followers. Now, if you haven't been able to be here each week, I, I hope that you'll go get one of the CDs of any, of any week you missed, or you can go online or go to our app, and you can listen to the lessons that way. But if you haven't been able to be here each week, it's, it's really important because all these lessons build on each other. And each week, what we've been doing is we've been going back to the very same story and unpacking the account of the Apostle Paul's experience in the city of Athens. And the Apostle Paul was the greatest Christian missionary of all time. He dedicated his life to spreading the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection across the known world of his day. And he went from town to town, and he would stay there for a while, sometimes as much as up to a year or two, and he would establish a church, and then he would move on to the next town. He did this all across the Roman Empire. In fact, some scholars believe he made it all the way from Palestine to Spain, um, but during one of his missionary journeys, he ended up in the city of Athens in Greece. Athens was a religious and intellectual capital of the world. It wasn't the political capital, that, that would have been Rome, but it was the intellectual and the spiritual capital of the world. Faith systems running the gamut from belief in everything is God all the way to there are hundreds of individual gods, all the way to there is no God, pure atheism, all of these were represented in Athens. At the same time, Athens produced a number of great philosophers, guys like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and several philosophical schools of thought, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Bible records in the book of Acts that while Paul was in Athens he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So here, Paul rolls into town, and he, he looks around, and immediately what he sees are city streets lined with temples and with different idols of different gods. And he was troubled by what he observed. It bothered him to see all these idols, objects of worship. And yet nobody was worshiping the one true God, the God who created the world, and in everything in it. And so, so here he is. He comes into this, this beautiful city, and here you have people in the intellectual capital of the world worshiping idols, images made by human hands, instead of the God who made it all. And for Paul, this was painful. This pained him, and it stirred him into action. And the Bible tells us, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, and those were Greek people who had become Jews, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So what happens? Paul comes into town, and he's disturbed by what he sees. But that's not enough. He begins to engage with anyone and everyone in the hope of introducing them to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, these aren't yelling matches. The Bible clearly states that he reasoned with these people. In other words, there was a dialogue, there was a back and forth, a give and take. Many of us who call ourselves Christians, we feel what Paul felt. Many of us look around at the culture in which we live and we see it changing. And we're distressed by it. Some of us, and I've talked to some people lately who say, you know what, Jeff, I don't even like to watch the news anymore. It's so negative. There's so much bad stuff going on. There's so, so much violence and so much killing and all this terrible stuff that's happening, and I just, I don't, I don't even want to think about it. 
You know, we live in a culture that seems increasingly dismissive, argumentative, or at times even maybe hostile toward Christianity. At the same time, we watch as other belief systems vie for people's attention right here in our own country. And we see an increasing number of people claiming to have absolutely no faith in any God at all. And we're troubled by it. But how are we supposed to respond to it? Unfortunately, this is where many of us part ways with the Apostle Paul. I mean, we share his distress, but unlike him, we don't engage. We settle for just going to church. We settle for just doing a bunch of religious stuff. We focus on our personal journey of faith. I'm working on my prayer life. I'm working on my Bible study, and all that stuff is good. I'm not saying anything negative about that. But we're not trying to get anybody else to come along on that journey of faith. And I wonder why that is. I wonder if part of the problem, and and you can just think about this, let it roll around your head. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't. But I wonder if part of the problem is that we're really not sure what we believe or why we believe it or if it makes sense to believe it. You know, in a study conducted last year by the American Culture and Faith Institute, only 30% of those claiming to be born-again Christians have a biblical worldview. And what it's saying here is they polled people and they asked them a bunch of questions based, based around what the Bible says about particular topics. And three out of ten people who attend churches just like G&G, only three of every ten have a worldview consistent with what the Bible tells us about God, the world in which we live, and how we can be in a right relationship with him. Three in ten. It's scary. And get this, only 21% of those claiming to be born-again Christians strongly affirm a personal responsibility to share their faith. 21%. Only two of every 10 Christians feel a strong responsibility to share their faith with anybody. In previous weeks, we've looked at the rapid rate at which the next generation is exiting the church. And I have to wonder if part of the reason is because their parents and many people in their church family simply do not possess a biblical worldview. And if that wasn't bad enough, don't feel responsible to share their faith even with their own kids. I've had people tell me, you know, I I want my kids to make their own choice, so I don't make them come to church. I don't make them go to youth group. I don't make them go to church camp in the summer. They can go to any camp they want to go to, but I wouldn't make them go to church because I want them to choose. And I wonder if it's really about them having a choice or if it's really about parents not being actually sure about what they believe. And when our kids go off to college, what kind of environment are we sending them to? According to one study... College professors are five times more likely to be atheists than the general population. Isn't that interesting? Needless to say, in that environment, our kids' faith will get challenged. Mine certainly did when I went off to college, and I went to a Catholic school. And I want you to understand something. It's not necessarily a bad thing that our kids' faith gets challenged. It grew me up pretty quick. I had to figure out, why do I believe this stuff that my parents taught me? Why do I think it's reasonable? You see, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because our kids should know what they believe and they should know why they believe it. But get this. 53% of college professors in the same study viewed evangelical students unfavorably. Now, I'm not going to get after the professors about that one. You know that? Here's why. I have to wonder if it's because our kids can't handle the challenge of having their faith tested. 
I mean, you think about it. If you're in a classroom full of students and the only answer you can give when a professor asks you, why do you believe that, is I don't know, I just believe. Or I don't know, my parents told me to believe it. I didn't want to get it done. And if that's what college professors are hearing from our kids, it's no wonder. They don't think highly of them. And is it any wonder, by and large, the next generation has rejected the church by the end of their college years? You know, at one point late in his ministry, Jesus sent the 12 apostles out to share the good news without him. He sent them out. And, 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 and he made this really intriguing statement. It's, a, it's up here on the, on, the, on the screens. It says this. He said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Notice what's going on here. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, I am Jesus. I'm sending you out. This was a command, not a request, not a suggestion. Jesus expects his followers to go into the world to share their faith. Not 21%, 100%. That's you, that's me, That's everybody that calls themselves a follower of Christ. And he says, I am sending you out. Like what? Like sheep among wolves. Think about that. This is not a comfortable picture. Jesus clearly understood that there would be those when we go out who will disagree, those who will oppose, those who sometimes will get angry, those who sometimes will react violently depending on where you are in the world. And this comes as no surprise to Jesus. He knew his followers would be targets, but he sent them out anyway. Notice that. (laughs) I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Guess what, boys? It ain't going to be easy. And he didn't withdraw the command just to protect the sheep. He said, get out there. Engage. Sure, there's going to be times when it's tough. There's going to be times when you feel like a sheep among wolves. Engage people anyway. But he's not finished. He goes on to say, therefore be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. What an interesting statement. Crazy combination. Shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves. And I think what he's talking about here is, he said, being shrewd. In other words, be smart, be discerning, know what you believe and why. Think about it and be ready to engage and be wise about how you do so. At the same time, be innocent as doves. In other words, pure. Uncontaminated by the world in which we live. You see, going out into the world is never going to work if your life doesn't reflect what Jesus called us to be. You see, people have to see a difference in our lives. They have to see purity and goodness and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those things that Christians call the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They've got to see that in us in order for our talk to match up with our walk. And when should we engage with the world around us? The Apostle Paul put it this way to a young pastor. And these same words could apply to all of us. You can, you can change the word preach to, to teach or, or talk to your neighbors or whatever, but Paul said these, that there are two times when we should be ready to engage. And notice what he said. He said, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. In season and out of season. Two times we're supposed to be prepared to share our faith with somebody else is in season and out of season. In other words, at all times, because there is no off season in the Christian life. We're always to be active in sharing our faith. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian and maybe you've wondered why maybe one of your Christian friends has been bugging you about coming to church and and maybe you're here because they invited you and, and, okay, you're just kind of checking things out. And maybe you've wondered, why, why do they do that? Well, it's because. It's not just because Jesus told us to. It's because we actually believe that we have truth about the world in which we live. We have truth about the God who created this world and truth about how we come into a right relationship with him. And it's good news. 
And we want you to know about it. Then what you do with it, that's, that's between you and God. But, but we want you to at least hear the good news. Now, the other thing that we have to understand, friends, is that what the Bible tells us about God and our relationship with him makes sense. It's reasonable. We don't have to be afraid to engage with those around us. Like Paul, we can go into our homes and our classrooms and our workplaces and we can engage, not in some pushy way, but a reasoned approach because what we believe makes sense. Now, our focus verse of this lesson series are the words of Jesus. They're up here on the screens. Let's all recite them together. Here we go. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, notice what he says here. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You see, Jesus didn't call his followers to some irrational belief. Uh Uh-uh. Loving God is not some blind leap into the unknown. We don't have to leave reason behind when we come to faith. Jesus said it this way, when it comes to loving God, you got to love with your head. Think. God created you with a brain. Use it. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word this morning. And Father, I just hope and pray that this morning you eliminate any distractions so that we can think clearly and that that people can focus and concentrate and get as much out of this as possible. Because Father, your word has so much to teach us. And so help us this morning to think well, to love you with our mind, for this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you'll take that outline out, that white sheet with holes on the side, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story of the Apostle Paul when he went to the city of Athens. And Paul engaged people in Athens in conversations about spiritual matters. And he was, he was encountered by two different philosophical schools. Okay? So here he is. He's out, he's out in the marketplace, apparently just talking with whoever he can. And some of these guys that were in, in, in these two schools happened to overhear it. And the next thing you know, they start to engage with him. The Bible tells us a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Why? Okay? What, what, what's, what, are, they, what are they debating with him about? Well, it says Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, friends, it's not an accident because the Bible is the inspired word of God, so it is no accident that God inspired Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, to mention that Epicurean philosophers debated with Paul. It's not there by accident, it's there for a reason. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, the Epicureans developed the idea of spontaneous evolution that rejected the need of gods, okay? So here they are in this city with all these gods and all these temples all over the place, and you've got this group of intellectuals, philosophers, who have come to the conclusion, you know what, there are are gods, okay? In their view, all matter consisted of tiny, invisible to the human eye things called atoms. And these atoms were in constant motion, and when by pure chance they collided, they became entangled with one another, and as a result, formed the basic elements of life. So it all just happened naturally. There's no God directing this. There's no, there's no supreme being, nothing, nothing like that. This just kind of happened, and matter's just kind of always been there. And because atoms collide by pure chance, there's no purpose, no design to our existence. We just kind of happen. So there's no creator God, no designer, it's random. And we're all here by accident, and when we die, it's over. In fact, death is just the scattering of our atoms. We cease to exist. So it's no wonder when they hear Paul talking about good news, and they hear him talking about a God who so loved the world that he sent his son not only to to come into the world, but to die for our sins and then to rise again conquering death, that got their attention. 
It is like the diametrical opposite of what they're teaching. But the cool thing about them is they ask Paul to appear before an assembly of intellectuals and explain his faith. So they're like, oh, yeah, come on, <laughs> talk to us about this. But when you think about it, the Epicureans were light years ahead of their time. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his book on the origin of species by means of natural selection. And by observing the changes that livestock breeders could produce by mating animals with specific traits, Darwin believed he discovered the mechanism by which natural evolution could occur. Okay? So he had seen, like, specifically, we know that he had watched pigeon breeders. And how they were able to breed certain kinds of pigeons together so that, so that they, you know, either flew faster or flew farther or whatever. But, but that's kind of where he, he began to get the idea. And he called this mechanism by which evolution could occur natural selection, or as we know it today, survival of the fittest. Now, Darwin's theory over time has, been a, has become a competing worldview with the worldview pe- presented by the Bible. And the two worldviews can be summarized kind of like this. These two competing worldviews. First of all, there you see the evolutionary worldview, and it begins with time. Time. Evolution demands long periods of time. They're necessary. Millions of years. Millions upon millions. And now they're talking in terms of 13.6 billion or whatever that is. But... No one has ever seen macroevolution. And when we say macro, what we're talking about is evolution from one animal to a very different kind of animal. That's very different from microevolution where you have, like, you're breeding cows and you decide you want some with longer hair. And, and so you, you breed the ones that have longer hair and they, they produce offspring with longer hair, but they're always still cows, right? Okay, that's microevolution. Macroevolution is the change from one type of animal to another. No one has ever seen this happen. But the idea is if you give it enough time, it could occur. Darwin said it this way. Natural selection acts only by taking advantage of slight successive variations. She can never take a great and sudden leap, but must advance by short and sure, though slow, steps. Now, this process is purely random. There is no guiding force or intelligence. The development of all forms of life is purely accidental. Oxford professor Richard Dawkins, probably the leading proponent of atheistic evolutionary theory today, says it this way. Natural selection, the blind, unconscious automatic process, which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life, has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. Now, notice what he's saying here. He uses the phrase apparently purposeful form of all life. In other words, he said, when you look at it, all of life appears to be purposeful. But it's not. Ignore what it looks like because it has no purpose. There is no mind behind it. There is no guiding or creative hand involved. But does that make sense? Ask yourself if that makes sense. Think of it this way. You've got a picture here of the Great Wall of China. Would you ever conclude by looking at the Great Wall that this structure was formed purely by chance by an explosion in a brick factory? I mean, seriously, folks, would you? Okay? Or perhaps this. What you have here is a picture of Mount Rushmore. Would anybody reasonably believe that the president's heads on Mount Rushmore are the product of millions of years of erosion? No. When any of us think that this is the product of unguided slight variations over time, or is this the product of a mind and a mind's eye? Perhaps this explains why, when Paul had an opportunity to speak to this assembly of the intellectual elite in Athens, he began with creation. 
Notice what he says. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. In other words, Paul says right, right, out, of the, right out of the shoot, there is a God, a creator God who created everything. What we see is not the product of evolutionary theory. Evolutionary theory not only includes time, but time plus matter. Okay? And for the Epicureans, they believe that matter always existed. It just, it's eternal. It's kind of, I guess, if you want to speak in those terms, it's, it's kind of eternal. It's just kind of always been there. Time plus matter plus chance. In other words, it's random. But it just kind of happened to work out like what we see. Now, Darwin added to this the mechanism that he thought drove evolution, which is natural selection. In other words, survival of the fittest. So the strong survive, the weak are eliminated, and the stronger and the, and the more advanced animals and, and ultimately, you know, whatever animal up to, all the way up to man finally survives and thrives. Now those that came after Darwin added one more driver to evolutionary theory, and that's mutations. Okay? Certain... certain Genes and, and certain animals had mutations that made them better able to, to survive and, so, and, and reproduce. And so those mutations helped them to grow and, and to, and to uh, reproduce. And so there it is. You can have molecules to man evolution with these drivers. Time, matter, chance, natural selection, and mutations. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. We're not the product of time, matter, chance, natural selection, and mutation. We're not the result of mindless forces that accidentally produced all that we see. God created us. And he goes on to say, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. In other words, he sustains us every moment of every day. He is the force that keeps all existence in existence. And then he says this, and I wonder if he, if he knew who the Epicureans were in the crowd and if he like eyeballed them at this moment. Because he says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, he said, man is a unique creation. Created an image of God, as we know from Genesis 1, not just another variation in the unguided process of evolution. But he's not done. He said, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In other words, he's saying this is a personal God who wants to be in relationship with us. He did this so we would seek him and reach out for him. Why? Because we are his offspring. He created us. And you have to ask yourself, friends, which worldview makes more sense? Which view better explains the world around us, or as Paul put it, the world and everything in it? Which one? Now, first, we have to understand that the theory of evolution does not explain origins. Just like the Epicureans, Darwin has to start with matter because you know what? Time and, he has to start with time and matter. They just have to be there. Because natural selection does not explain how something got there in the first place. Natural selection only operates on the information that is already available. It does not produce new information. All right? So natural selection or survival of the fittest only operates on that which is already in existence. Let me give you an example, okay? Natural selection works on animals that already exist. It doesn't bring them into existence. So faster, stronger animals survive and reproduce. Slower, weaker animals don't. But the animals have to exist first for natural selection to come into play. In fact, Dr. Werner Gitt in his book, In the Beginning Was Information, wrote this. He said, there is no known law of nature. 
No known process and no known sequence of events which can cause information to originate by itself in matter. In other words, friends, natural selection cannot account for the origin of life forms. It only works on life forms that already exist. Nor can mutations, the other driver of evolution, Dr. Lee Spetner, professor at Johns Hopkins University, said this. All point mutations that have been studied on the molecular level turn out to reduce the genetic information and not to increase it. Whoever thinks macroevolution, the, the, the evolution from one kind of an animal to a completely different kind, whoever thinks macroevolution can be made by mutations that lose information is like the merchant who lost a little money on every sale but thought he could make it up in volume. Okay? It doesn't work. All right? Mutations reduce. They do not increase genetic information, and mutations are overwhelmingly detrimental to the organism, which makes it more difficult for them to survive if it doesn't kill them. So natural selection and mutation cannot account for origins or variations beyond slight modifications. There is no macro evolution. It has never been observed. Second, information requires an information provider. Information requires an information provider. And you may be thinking, what, what, where are we going now? Hang with me. This is, this is easy. All right? Check, check this out. <clears throat> this is a stone tablet that was found. Okay? This is what we call hieroglyphics. Just look at it. Is there anybody in this room that would reasonably suggest that this is the product of random forces gradually producing these markings over millions of years. No. Why? Because you look at them and you know that there is an order, there is something going on here that indicates somebody made it. All right? Check this out. Got the same thing going on on a sandy beach. Somebody decided to write, I love you. Nobody would assume, if they're in their right mind, that these were produced by the wind and the waves. No. We assume intelligence is behind the production of these things because it's obviously not natural, right? You see, Darwin had the same problem the Epicureans had 2,000 years before him. He assumed that the cell, the basic building block of life, was a simple organism, much like the Epicureans assumed that atoms, which make up everything, were these little, hard, invisible pellets. Very simple structures. Darwin thought that this cell was a very simple structure, but scientific advancements since Darwin's day have shown that the cell is a vast storehouse of information. In fact, Darwin realized the potential problem in his theory. He wrote this. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. What he didn't know was just how complex the cell actually is. He didn't know about DNA. There is, in fact, no entity in the known universe that stores and processes more information more efficiently than the DNA molecule. A full complement of human DNA has three billion individual characters. Analysis of the DNA molecule's coding regions show that its chemical characters have a specific arrangement that allows them to convey detailed instructions or information, much like letters in a meaningful sentence or binary digits in a computer code. 
Bill Gates has said that DNA is like a computer program, only much more complex than any we've been able to devise. And if you reflect on that even for a minute, it's a highly suggestive observation because we know that Bill Gates does not employ wind and erosion or random number generators to generate his software. Instead, he employs intelligent engineers, software engineers. And so everything we know in our experience suggests that information-rich systems arise from intelligent design. But what do we make of the fact that there is information in life, in every living cell of every living organism? That's the fundamental mystery. Where does that information come from? For the past 15 years, philosopher and scientist Stephen Meyer has worked to answer this question. Meyer has developed an argument to demonstrate that intelligent design provides the best explanation for the origin of information necessary to build the first living cell. It's part of our knowledge base that intelligent agents can produce information-rich systems. So the argument is not based on what we don't know, but it's based on what we do know about the cause and effect structure of the world. We know at present there is no naturalistic explanation, no natural cause that produces information. Not natural selection, not self-organizational processes, not pure chance. But we do know of a cause which is capable of producing information, and that is intelligence. So when people infer design from the presence of information in DNA, they're effectively making what's called in the historical sciences an inference to the best explanation. So when we find an information-rich system in the cell, in the DNA molecule specifically, we can infer that an intelligence played a role in the origin of that system, even if we weren't there to observe the system coming into existence. See, friends, the best explanation for information encoded at the genetic level is an intelligent information provider. Information does not originate by itself in matter. Now, the third thing to think about is this. Design requires a designer. Design requires a designer. Now, just just think about this for a moment. What you're going to see here coming up on the screen is a Boeing 747, okay? It's an airplane, right? Now, I'm told that the average Boeing 747 consists of 6 million different parts. 6 million. Interestingly enough, and I'll probably be thinking about this next month when we fly to Florida to visit relatives, not one of those parts by itself can fly. Did you know that? They don't fly. Chances are when we get it to a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet, I'll break out in a cold sweat. But here's the thing. We can use this analogy for the cell, the basic building block of life. Within the cell, scientists have discovered thousands of biochemical machines. Just like all the parts of a 747, they have to be perfectly assembled before it can fly. So all the parts of these cellular biochemical machines have to be in place or they cannot function. The cell will not function. And there are literally thousands of them in a single cell that are vital in order for it to operate. In other words, as Darwin understood, the single cell is a complex organ that cannot be produced by numerous, slight, successive variations. His theory, by his own admission, with subsequent scientific findings, absolutely breaks down. And finally, friends, millions of years doesn't account for the reality of information and design. Millions of years doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't. Professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University, a man by the name of Michael Behe, said it this way. He said, the resulting realization that life was designed by an intelligence is a shock to us in the 20th century who have gotten used to thinking of life as the result of simple, natural laws. Shocked. Life is designed. It is the result of an intelligent being, the creator God, we believe, of the Bible. It is not the result of time plus matter 
plus chance, plus natural selection, plus mutations. And I know, I know what some of you are probably thinking. Some of you are thinking, okay, yeah, okay, you're trying to tell us the world isn't millions of years old. Okay, Jeff. All right, you're going to take us back to Genesis, and you're going to tell us it was God made it in six days, and nobody believes that. Okay? I mean, let's be realistic. Next thing you know, you're going to be talking about goofy stuff like a worldwide flood. Right? Now, I mean, think about, think about this, this here. This is the Grand Canyon. And everybody knows it takes millions of years to form something like that. Because down at the bottom, you've got this river that runs through there, and it takes millions and millions of years for water to erode those, those cliffs away. And, and you've got all these rock layers that show millions of years. I mean, you can see the different layers, and, and it's obvious that that's, that's probably, who knows, maybe that one layer you see toward the bottom is 500,000 years. Maybe another one is like, you know, 2.8 million. Who knows, right? It takes a long time to do that. Couldn't produce that. You couldn't have a world that, that God created in six days. But interestingly enough, on May the 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens in the Pacific Northwest erupted with the force of 33,000 atomic bombs. That's how magnificent the power was that they estimate this eruption was at. This volcano had been dormant for a century, but the explosion and the resulting mudslides, because what happened was as the heat was coming up from underground, what happened was it melted the snow on top of the mountain and it turned all the dirt into mud. And this became like a flowing river, if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen any of the video of it. The mudslide was so strong that it cut out a canyon They refer to it now as the Little Grand Canyon, believe it or not. It's 100 feet deep and just about the same same width. It's 140th the size of the Grand Canyon. And that canyon was cut in less than 24 hours. Now... You think about a worldwide flood and what that could do to our landscape. You think about what the Bible has to say, and I think that what you see in God's world agrees with what we see in God's Word. Some people ask me, well, Jeff, the Bible's not a science book, and no, thank God it isn't. Because the Bible contains truth. Science books change with every edition. Okay? Does it address every scientific subject? Obviously not. That's not its purpose. But what it does say about science is true. That you can bank on. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, Jeff, you know, I can can kind of believe both. I mean, I don't have to... You know, I don't have to believe in that creation story, right? I mean, I, you know, I, can, I still believe in Jesus and stuff, but I believe the world's millions of years old, and, and I can do that, can't I? And the answer is, yeah, you can. I mean, yeah. Believe me, friends, I'm not saying, oh, if you don't believe in six days, you're, you're, you're going to hell or anything. I'm not saying that at all, okay? A lot of people believe in Jesus, and yet they believe in evolution and believe the world's all these millions of years old. What I am saying, though, is this. You just can't believe in it consistently. Okay? It's inconsistent to believe in both. Let me explain. The Bible is very clear that when God got to the end of the creative order, in Genesis 1.31, he says, God saw that all that he had made, and it was very what? Good. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So he's saying when he was done with creation, everything was very good. In fact, we learn as we read the Bible that 
sin and evil and death did not enter the world until Adam fell. Now, as Paul is talking to these Epicureans, he makes an interesting statement. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, what he's saying there is, you know, the God that created the world has a certain system of right and wrong. And we as human beings violate that and we have to repent. And when you think about the created order, there's really only two options. Option one is this. God is good and the world he created was good. Just like the Bible says. God is good and the world he created was good. But something went wrong and now we live in a fallen world. But there's hope. There's hope. Think about it. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. In other words, it wasn't until sin came into the picture that death came into the picture. But there's hope. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible also tells us this. It says, but God has indeed been raised, or but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man. It doesn't say death came through the animal kingdom. It says death came through a man. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, think about that, friends. If... If you believe that the world is millions and millions of years old and that the animals all, the animals all came first before man and that these, these things were all dying and killing off each other and all that kind of stuff was happening, then, then this is just wrong. The wage of sin is not death. It's not because death was already part of the deal. And it says, for as in Adam all die. Well, that's not true because everything was dying before Adam. So in Christ all will be made alive. Well, that made that isn't true if the rest of it isn't true. You know, it's fascinating to me, a gentleman by the name of Ian Barber who won the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, he made this comment. He said, you simply can't any longer say, as traditional Christians, that death was God's punishment for sin. Death was around long before human beings. Death is a necessary aspect of evolution. So what's he saying here? He's saying you really got one of two choices. Either God is good like it presents him in the Bible and the world was created good and then something went wrong, or option two, if there is a God, the world he created is as it's always been. There's always been pain. There's always been sickness. There's always been violence. There's always been death. I mean, let's face it. They found dinosaur bones with arthritis, right? These things had disease. Many of them died as a result of battles that they were fighting with each other. So, so if that's just kind of the way God created the world, that's just, why would we be surprised when we turn on the news and human beings are killing each other? You see, if there is a God, the world he created is, as it's always been, filled with pain, sickness, violence, and death. Thus, God is not good. Okay. And so the next time that somebody comes up to you who's had a death in the family and they ask you what you think about that, you can no longer say, you know, this world is not as God intended it. You have to say, hey, that's just the way it is. If you believe in God, this is how he made it. Tough luck. Now, the fact of the matter is that God has a standard. 
He has a, a right and a wrong. And Paul ends his talk with these philosophers with this statement. He said, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In other words, friends, he's saying, you know what, there's, there's a time coming for all of us when we will stand before the God who created us and we will answer for the life we've lived. There is a time. But there is hope because God sent his son into the world to take care of our sin problem, to die in our place, and to take the punishment or the wage of sin so that we can be together forever with God in heaven. Now, friends, I I don't know where you are this morning in your spiritual walk, but if you're not a Christian and you have questions about that, I just hope that you'll mark that communication card and drop it in the drop it in the baskets in the back and we'll sit and we'll have a talk or maybe, maybe you've been coming to Good News for a while and, and you're thinking you know Jeff I still have a lot of questions about, about stuff and even though, even though I feel like I've been a Christian for a while I still have a lot of questions well we got a getting started group starting up here in just a couple of weeks and you can read more about it on your, on your insert but that's, that's over at Cheryl in, in, in my house, and, and we just have people in, and, it's, and you, can, you can ask whatever question you want. If you'd like to read more or learn more about some of the topics that we've been covering over this past three, four weeks, there's a book out called Glass House, Shattering the Myth of Evolution, and I would really strongly encourage you to give that a look. It'll be helpful for you. Friends, let's think. Christ called us to love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind. So let's think. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to dive into your word and to think. Father, help us to think well, to be people who use our minds to discover the truth that you have for us. Help us, Father, to be the light of the world that you've called us to be and help us to reach out to those around us with the good news of your Son. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, Amen.